Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the second season of Progeny Podcast. And I'm so excited about today's episode. There is no denying that in the past 20 years, the most influential and recognizable voice in the Shia community is Dr. Sayyid Amman Akhshawani. One only has to look at this year's Muharram and Safar Majalis that were watched by millions around the world to have a glimpse of this influence. Notice that when you write Sayyid on Google, the first name to appear is Sayyid Amman Akhshawani. But surrounding the influence is also a number of issues concerning his opinions and thoughts. In this podcast, we shall discuss for the first time and address many of these issues. Dr. Sayyid Amman Akhshawani, welcome to the Progeny Podcast. It's an honor to have you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Sayyid, let's start off by um, mentioning the Muharram and the Safar Majalis. Uh, how was it different morning for Imam Al-Hussein during COVID, knowing that you're used to having a crowd in front of you, now you're doing most of your majalis online? Well, first and foremost, I thank God that I had the honor of reciting the lectures in the holy month of Muharram. Um, without a doubt, it was different. You know, normally you have the fellow community members, both those you know and those you don't know, uh, sitting in front of you. And uh, this year you've got five, six people sitting in front of you and, and you're looking at them, they're looking at you. It's a surreal feeling. Um, we did miss the congregation, there's no doubt. You miss seeing those in front of you who are expressing their emotions, who are understanding the points that you're making, or in some cases not sure about the point that you've made. Looking baffled. At you. Looking baffled in some cases, but that's all part of the, you know, the the flavor of the programs that take place in the holy month of uh, Muharram. Uh, but you know, it was um, it was it was successful. Alhamdulillah, the community in Peterborough welcomed me uh, with what I gather is exactly the same hospitality that they would have welcomed me had there been a couple of thousand people sitting in front of me. Uh, they went out of their way to make sure that, you know, the millions who are listening online were able to benefit as much from the live uh, broadcast as possible. And it is what it is. You know, you could sit and think to yourself that I've been used to for over 20 years reciting in front of um, a number of people sitting in a congregation and this year it's somewhat different. But, you know, God's been so kind. And uh, even the fact that there's five, six in front of us, we know we had the hearts of millions joining us. And hopefully the little service that we gave back, the Imam of our time is proud of. So it was different, but Alhamdulillah, God, uh, God helped us get through it healthily. Alhamdulillah. One positive we gained from, especially Safar, because usually Arba'in, if you want to listen to Sayyid Ammar, you have to be in Karbala. Hmm. So you're in Ziyara, you'll listen to Sayyid Ammar, you'll go to the majalis that you hold in the holy city of Karbala. But this year, obviously, number one, you weren't able to go for ziyara. But on the positive side is that people around the world got to hear majalis in Arba'in for the first time, I think, in a very long time. Yeah, we worked our socks off to get there to Karbala and unfortunately it didn't happen. And I'm sure many people had seen that I had made an announcement in, in one of the nights in the holy month of Muharram where I had said that uh, this year we will be going on ziyara. I didn't mention specifically where, and uh, it turned out that the ziyara we went on was to Collindale in London. <laughs> so uh, for those who say that you didn't go to ziyara, no, even turning up at the Imam Hussein TV studios in London um, 
was the ziyara um, in of itself. But alhamdulillah, you know, I haven't recited 10 nights in the Arba'in period for now, maybe over 10 years. As you said, we normally have the majalis with spiritual journeys in Karbala, uh, probably the largest gathering of uh, any majlis in Karbala um, in that particular period. There's thousands of majalis in these small mawakib, but to have the majlis that we have with spiritual journeys um, is always a huge honor. It's a great spectacle. But once again, God's the best of planners. Maybe there were certain topics that had to be addressed publicly so that everybody could listen to them rather than privately as I would normally do in Karbala on nights like this. The Imam Hussein TV team were fantastic. Uh, and uh, they were a great success. Um, it may not come back again for a number of years. We may return to Karbala, inshallah, next year. But to be able to reciprocate in our feelings for wanting to be in Karbala. There are so many of the wonderful followers of Ahlul Bayt, Salawatullah who until today tell me how much they miss Karbala. Now you were fortunate enough to make it to Karbala. Um, and so in one way, maybe you got an invite that I didn't. And another way, maybe you had a role and I had a role. And the best way is to look at these things positively. Alhamdulillah, yeah. that's the positive I mentioned that people got to listen to Majalis for Arba'in for the first time. Let's go back to the, to the start. We both grew up in, in London. You come from a scholarly family. But going back to the 80s and 90s, I don't think you aspire to be in this field that you're in of service, of khidmah, of the Prophet and the Ahlul Bayt Tell me about those years the 80s the 90s what do you what do you remember from the community from where you grew up yeah the the 80s and 90s i don't think anyone aspired to be an english lecturer because there really was no such thing as uh, becoming a khatib or a lecturer or a reciter in the english language uh, we were finding our feet in this country having to juggle so many identities uh, and we thank really the founding fathers of of the mosques that were able to cater for this generation that was half Iraqi, half British, half Iranian, half British, half Khaja, half British, half Pakistani, half British. A number of the leaders of our communities, they were fantastic in the way that many of us don't appreciate. They were the ones who bought pieces of land, purchased freehold buildings to make sure that we were all able to gather together on the on the nights of the Wilada and the Shahada of the Imams of Ahlul Bayt. And so I remember in the 80s, you're looking back in the 80s, my, my first memory would be 87 near Baker Street Station, Al-Jam'iyya Al-Araqiyya, which was there, Al-Jam'iyya, they used to call it an although it was made up mainly of the Iraqi community and the Bahraini community and people like that who had come together to try and Serve the community and the Imam of the mosque at that time was um, Said Hussain al-Shami Abu Musa, he was the Imam of the mosque, we're talking 87 mm. At the same time in Clapham Which at that time was an area you wouldn't necessarily visit uh, Without thinking where the nearest hospital may be And today you look at it, it's just like It's just gone so uh, Different. trendy now <laughs> And uh, I think at that time we used to go to Marquez Ahlul Bayt if you remember And uh, there was a great combination of the great scholar and one of the the best leaders you could have said Mahdi al-Hakim, may Allah bless his soul. 
Said Muhammad Bahr al-Ulum, may Allah bless his soul. And at the same time, you had in Muharram, the Balaghi family with their outstanding work that they used to do. So these people were the bedrock of our upbringing. You had, for example, schools like Madrasat al-Huda, which many would have attended. And I don't think my teachers necessarily would have predicted that I would uh, become <laughs> who I became. Um, Al-Marhum Abu Haidar Zwin, God bless his soul, he, he, uh, he gave so much effort. Um, so you, you had a community that was coming together, a community that had realized that the bedrock of the growth of the Shia community is Muharram and Shah Ramadan. And during that period, there is also a development of the Khaja community. Uh, you've got uh, Majma in Holland Park, which was a place I'd love to be at on the 21st or the 23rd of Ramadan. So we are indebted to all of these places, not forgetting the Marhum from the Naruzada family, who had also been one of the main pillars of establishing the lectures in the Majalis. But the reality was that these lectures were all in Arabic or in Urdu or in Farsi. Mm. So I don't think many of us were necessarily interested in sitting in the lectures. There's no way that I used to enjoy sitting in the lectures. I, I do remember if there was any lecturer who I may have enjoyed listening to in those early years, Mullah Asghar, may Allah bless his soul, had certain lectures which I vividly remember um, due to the encouragement of my of my parents and ensuring, especially my mother, pushing us uh, that we didn't live far away from Stanmore Mosque. And therefore, uh, they had some fantastic programs there at the time. But again, th there was nothing there that would make me think that I would um, I would become a lecturer because there was no real inspiration in the lectures. We I remember the Khoi days, though. The Latom was one thing we looked forward to. <clears throat> oh, yeah, for sure. You know, Latom, Matam, we used to love it. Uh, who could get the redder chest? I think that was that was a major uh, competition on the reddest chests. So, you know, the the idea that we love Imam Al Hussein salam and and the idea that we will go in for latom or food and so on that that was a vital component. And if ever I could stress to the listeners, I would always say to them that you know, with your kids, make sure Muharram is is the foundation. If you're not going to devote too much else, make sure they recognize the importance of Majalis al-Hussein, Sha'air al-Hussein, those um, areas in which we can gain closeness to what happened at Karbala. Because the more you reflect on Karbala, even if you just learned one thing, then it softens you. I don't know if you remember Sheikh al-Fadali. Yeah, of course. Sheikh al-Fadali, I would say, was the first to make me cry. Sheikh Al-Fadali was giving uh, Arba'een at Al-Khu'i Mosque. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, around 96, maybe, 95, 96. And he recited the Maqtal of the Arba'een. And then he ends it with Ya Tarib Al-Khad. Mm. And when I thought of Ya Tarib Al-Khad and I thought of the translation, it was the first time that I broke down. And I think if in your period of adolescence if you do break down the soul the heart softens the soul suddenly finds areas where it can grow and develop and so i thank all of these but was i aspiring to one day sit where 
you know, these figures were sitting and to lead a community and to lecture on Islam? No, not at all. Not at all. There was nothing there. So when's the turning point when you thought, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to serve my community. I think we were given good opportunities to develop as leaders. Um, Al-Hajj Abu Zainab Al-Kadhimi used to encourage growth as leaders, as volunteers in the community. When you want to serve, you have to serve grassroots. People have to see that you've served grassroots. And you have to learn the meaning of giving back. And I think he was an inspiration in telling us to come back and to give back towards the towards the community. And you had Sheikh Bilal at Al-Khu'i who suddenly starts to encourage more and more that those of you who are volunteering, male and female, let me add, you should speak about your aspirations. You should speak about the religion that you love. And it was at the gym at Al-Khu'i that you suddenly start to develop a feeling. Uh, Dr. Abu Asma, if you remember well, also used to encourage the Shabab to gather. Yep. But I do think when Hajj Hassanin Rajab Ali came to London, I think at that time, the, the image of English lecturing suddenly changes. Suddenly, it's not somebody who is knowledgeable but with an accent. Now you have someone who's knowledgeable but eloquent, motivational, you can relate to. And I do remember me and him speaking together at Queen Mary's University, Ahl al-Bayt Society event 2001. And him mentioning that, look, the demand is high but the supply is low. And you're going to have to step up. And I was fortunate that we had a platform at Al Haraka. And there are so many who I'm sure will listen to this will remember Al Haraka Al Haidariya. And you guys have developed it to Haraka Al Husseiniya, which, you know, is something extremely proud of. Alhamdulillah. And hopefully the next generation will take a step back and say, Haraka Al Hassaniya. Sorry, Imam, we forgot you. Definitely. So, you know, with Haraka Al Haidariya, what's, what's, Amazing is that we've got this group of youths who come together, very raw, but they all have a passion to serve. And I've had this passion to serve having returned from Umrah. I've seen Jannat al-Baqiyah. I haven't cried at Jannat al-Baqiyah out of realization that I don't know anything about Imam al-Hassan, Imam Zain al-Abidin, Imam al-Baqir, Imam al-Sadiq. And so it has an effect on me. When it has this effect on me, I tell the group of Shabab around me. You know, I remember I'd just come back from Umrah and uh, our good friend Hussain, Hussain Raouf. Yep. I see Hussain outside the mosque mm. and I'm telling him all about Umrah and he's like to me, this is outstanding. You know, he, he's telling me, you know, bro, the passion that you have for this is, is phenomenal. And I'm telling him about what I've gone through in Umrah and how... There's a need for us to talk about Ahl al-Bayt. Why are we making excuses that the lectures are in Arabic or Urdu or Farsi? Why don't we now develop something in the English language? And, he's, and I remember him telling me, well, who's going to kick it off? And I said, well, I'll do it. 
And we started to bring others in from, from the different groups of the Shabab at the time, the different groups of the youths in the Iraqi community. And we decided to start Al-Haraka. And here I am speaking every Friday at Al-Haraka. And when we're speaking every Friday, we start off with about 15 people at the beginning. That develops to 30, that moves on to 60, that goes on to 120. Now there's Pakistani youth coming. Now there's Afghan youth coming. Iranian converts have now found a space again after maybe being left out in the yep, dark definitely. for a while. And so I would say that those were the turning points. You know, a mixture of having seen that there was a need in myself to speak about how little knowledge we have of Ahmed al-Baqi'ah to begin with, of the Imams of Jannat al-Baqi'ah. Having seen Hajj Hassan al-Rajab Ali talk about the need for all of us to fulfill our potential. And then having had and been fortunate to be in a generation of Shabab who were like-minded, who wanted to see a development in the community in terms of religious learning in the English language, it all came together wonderfully. Uh, so I thank the Lord that he allowed me to emerge and flourish with all of these different opportunities and blessings emerging. Alhamdulillah, today Sayyid Ammar is known worldwide. And as I mentioned at the start, you know, you can only look at your lectures, for example, this Muharram or even the last few years of Muharram, you look at the views when it comes, when they go on YouTube, when they're live, and the thousands of people from around the world watching them, building up to, you know, close to a million, if not more, on your YouTube channel, as I've noticed. But one thing that you're known for is your style of lecturing. How did that come about? Well, that certainly wasn't um, the style at the beginning. At the beginning, it was absolutely raw. And here I am, I'm just like jumping from topic to topic and I'm screaming as I'm talking, I'm loud. I can still be loud at certain moments, yeah. but I'm loud. But what comes from the heart reaches the heart. There was a lot of trial and error. And sometimes people are not forgiving to young speakers when they're in the process of trial and error. Amman Akshawani didn't begin as he is now. No. It's like marriage, for example. There is this belief that the son-in-law has to be as successful as the father is at this moment. Well, the father should remind himself, how were you when you first started? Oh, how was you your stop? success? Yeah. And so in the beginning, it was trial and error. Because remember, there's no ma'had, for example, or institute for khataba in English. There may have been in Arabic. There's an institute for how you develop lectures, how you structure lectures. There may have been in, in Farsi. There may have been in Urdu, but there wasn't in English. So for a lot of us, it was trial and error. I must admit that of the supervisors I had, Professor C.E. Bosworth, renowned orientalist uh, and great scholar of Islam, who passed away a few years ago, he did have a discussion with me about how my lectures should develop into essays. And he used to say to me that, structure it like an essay. Intro. You're writing an essay. What would you have? You'd have intro. And then you'd have, for example, point one, arguments for. Point two, arguments against. Point three, contemporary opinion. Point four, which will, for example, uh, come together with the conclusion. Imagine 
a non-Muslim provides a catalyst or an inspiration for what then develops into some of the most listened to lectures in the Shi'i world today. And that just goes to show you that God has a purpose for everybody. That might have been his sadaqah jariya, by the way. The fact that he sat with his Muslim student and encouraged him to develop a method which hither to this point had never been done. You know, I used to remember listening to Sheikh Ahmed Al-Wa'ili. May Allah bless his soul. Sheikh Ahmed Al-Wa'ili will take a verse of the Quran which he'll then divide. Mm -hmm. But he wouldn't necessarily take a topic which he'd examine for 50 minutes in a row. Would be a verse. He has some. But rarely, it's mainly a verse, unless he's doing a biography of a personality whose shahada is that night or so on. Normally it's a verse, then he breaks up the verse, and then in breaking up the verse, for example, let's say you take the eye of the Quran, I don't know. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim inna alladhina amanu amilu salihat ulaika hum khayrul barri. Shaykh Ahmed al-Wa'ali would say, the first portion we'll look at is, what is the meaning of iman? In inna alladhina amanu. Number two, Amal Salih. Number three, So he's taken an ayah and broken it down. But in break it down, he'll go off to different tangents. Of course. Use poetry. Use poetry and so on, stories. But he's going off to different tangents in the sense that, okay, Iman has a few stories on Iman. Amal Salih has a few points. So it's not one topic for 45. You can go off to different areas, but he just done it perfectly. With myself, I looked at it and I thought, you know what, let me develop my lectures like an essay. Because the listener will know, okay, you know what, I wonder what he's going to say in point number two. Point number four. Oh my God. I've always asked that question and now he's going to say it as point number four. And so when someone leaves your lecture, they leave the lecture thinking, I can now repeat verbatim his structure. Mm. The problem with many lectures up to that point and maybe even today there's no structure if you listen to whether it's in arabic or english you'll hear a lecturer begin talk about marriage 15 minutes later is on akhlaq 25 minutes later it's talking about the community 14 minutes later it's about god 11 minutes later. so by the end you're like there were so many nice points but i don't know what the topic was so i thought that with the style of intro let's dissect this in complete depth I really put a challenge on myself that I can continue to talk about this for 50 minutes. Not easy. There are many who won't do it because to continue to talk about one topic for 50 minutes, you've got, got, to, study, have, yeah. you've got to study pretty hard and you've got to have some pretty solid content. You can never, let me make this clear to the listeners, you can never explain everything related to that topic in 50 minutes. There are people who listen to you and say, but you could have said this and you could have said that. You're absolutely right. right. If you give me another six hours, I probably will. Yeah. But in 50 minutes, Muharram night seven, you try sitting up there and summarizing a topic in 50. So develop that style, the essay style. And alhamdulillah, everywhere you go around the world, whether you go to the Indo-Pak subcontinent, you go to the Middle East or parts of North America or Europe, people will always look at you and say, let's dissect this topic. In yeah. complete depth, one, two, three, four, five. And I'm honored. And I thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for giving me 
you know, that wisdom, that insight to be able to develop a style where a person's like, it's so easy to listen to Said Ammar's flow in a lecture. You know, that's all due to the Lord. You mentioned at the beginning, you know, we mentioned the positivity of this year, Arba'een, was people got to hear you. Maybe they couldn't because they were in Karbala. And there were specific topics that you chose that you feel should have been addressed. Um, how do you pick these topics? You know, we're talking here um, specifically this Muharram, there were some interesting topics as well as Arba'een. Or even the previous years, or Ramadan, for example, you did the, the death. Mm. How do you come up with your topics? Do you know what? There's no one answer for how we come up with a topic. Um, it could be on the basis of the emails and messages that you receive, where you look at a particular topic that keeps popping up. Mm. People continuously are asking about this topic. And it seems that although someone may have given a two or three minute discussion or an answer, for example, on the internet with two or three lines, they haven't addressed it with the depth that the topic deserves. So sometimes it'll be on the basis of the emails that I'm receiving. Sometimes it's on the basis of me scouring online to see where is Islam being attacked or where are there misconceptions about Islamic history or Islamic theology, both within the community and outside of the community. So for example, this year, you know, there were, some people came up to me and they enjoyed female genital mutilation as a topic. Others said, well, not really in Muharram. Mm. Muharram tends to be where you get the broadest crowd, broadest both within the community of the most devout Shia and the one who only listens in Muharram and outside of the community where you may get the Shia who are ready to send to their non-Muslim friends discussions. And so sometimes you may find that there are certain ex-Muslims or non-Muslims who will say that Islam is a religion that allows female genital mutilation. I've seen this go on for years mm. and it's hardly ever been addressed. So when I kept on looking at videos, Islam, fem female genital mutilation, Islam allows female genital mutilation. So therefore I felt that there was a need to address it. But then Muslim and gay, for example, is because clearly there is a discussion now within the Muslim community in Muslim majority countries and outside of the Muslim community in non-Muslim majority countries where people are asking what's Islam's stance on, for example, the homosexual community. So there was a need to address it both through an Islamic lens as well as appreciate that there may be a non-Islamic worldview in looking at such a topic. Then I might hear, for example, in the community that there are murmurs about certain topics which people still have misconceptions about. Um, so I had a couple of topics this year which I felt needed addressing, such as, for example, Ziyarat Ashura, such as, for example, why do the Shia curse? I felt that these needed to be addressed because it seems that even within our own community, there are people who are like, you know what, I'm not reading Ziyarat Ashura yes, anymore. Course, yeah. And I'm not going to do La'ana because the Imams wouldn't do La'ana. And um, when I hear such things, I feel that, yes, there's a point here where it needs to be addressed. Then there are others where you don't really need to hear from the community. You know, everyone's always waited for a biography of the Ma'asumin. But no one hardly ever stepped up to give a biography of the 14 Ma'asumin. And you can never give a biography of the 14. It will take you a lifetime and more. But what you can do is give an introduction for an hour each. And that's where the biography of the 14 Ma'asumin series started in Dar es Salaam. Or the biography of Imam Ali alayhi salam 
Um, yep. Or on the Prophet, or Imam al-Mahdi, or the series on Quranic sciences, or on death. You know, all of these are topics which I think people always continuously ask about. And it w was nice to be able to give 20 lectures, 30 lectures on these topics, rather than just giving a 45-minute lecture one-off. So it varies where these topics come from. You know, there are certain speakers who will tell me, listen, I don't know how you're finding these new topics as we're struggling <laughs> to find new topics and you're finding new ones all the time. Uh, but I think, you know, ask the Lord to inspire you, keep reading, and you'll, you'll see that this religion's an ocean. What I've given back in lectures is an aorta of the knowledge that's available in this wonderful religion. There are so many discussions to be had. And if God grants me a longer life, then inshallah we'll get to all of them. Celebrities sometimes they say, or fanboys, fangirls, you know, this stuff is thrown at you. One can even argue that you've changed the image of how a scholar should be. You know, I've seen it. Some Don't people, I look scholarly? Oh, you always do. Okay. Some people come and say selfies, you know, say let's take a selfie, sometimes males, females. How do you, how do you, you know, cope with this how, how do you re react to all this people you know saying you've changed the image well i don't think any of us ever expected or signed up for the fact that a lecturer from the streets of london lecturing in front of 13 people on a friday night would eventually be someone listened to worldwide you don't sign up for that you ask anybody including yourself and it's great that you're the one conducting this discussion because you've been there with me throughout this journey. Did you ever imagine that it would get to this position or status yeah. ever? Yeah. I remember that you did the the documentary uh, or the, the series of shows Reborn. Yeah. I enjoyed those shows not only because 95% of the time they would mention my name and how they know. became Shia but on a serious note I enjoyed them because there were people I had never met I never knew that those people were inspired existed. by I didn't even know they existed yeah. I didn't know they were inspired by my hmm. lectures to come towards the path of Ahlul Bayt so if those people one day I'm in an airport let's say in uh, in New Jersey not that I can really go to airports in America America at the moment, <laughs> but I hope everyone prays for me to be able or to be allowed to return. But if I was to be, for example, at an airport in New Jersey and someone comes up to me and says, can I have a selfie with you? I don't even know who they are, but they're saying that it was your lecture on this night in 2007. I can't even remember the lecture. Hmm. That made me come towards the path of elevate. What do I do at that moment? Of course, if they're going to ask me for a selfie, I'm honored, but I don't sign up for that. I don't sign up that one day you're going to be walking, for example, you go to Ziara and you have to be quite private in Ziara because every place that you walk, you've got people who recognize you and take selfies with you. There was a period of time where you'd have ladies in the community who'd come and take selfies with me. And each one of them would tell you, this lecture changed me. This lecture, for example, made me wear hijab. This lecture, for example, helped me in a debate or a discussion. And I had to stop taking selfies because people would take these pictures and they'd say, what type of scholar is this who takes pictures with girls? I only would look at it by 
thinking to myself, okay, okay, cool, you know, just take a quick picture. I'm not going to conduct a conversation. I'm going to be moving on. But here you have a situation where that lady may have been inspired by a lecture of mine, is so happy to tell me about how much she's been inspired, wants to take a selfie, and then people look at it. Don't get me wrong. Most people are good. Shaitan makes us think that most people don't like these things or are haters, but most people are very genuine. But they'll always be, as in the West Indies, our good friend Amunawid would always say, empty barrels make the most noise. And there's a number of empty barrels whose envy overtakes them. They cannot take the fact that nobody's ever asked them for a selfie. And so for them, it kills them. You know, how is it that I'm maybe not looking as religious as they do in the Bahloulesque worldview of having a Sibha and a Abaya on me, but that this person gets all the accolades or he gets all these. And when you're saying fanboys and fangirls, that's got nothing to do with me. And much rather that they are fans of someone who gives lectures about the Ma'sumin rather than fans of people who may have lyrics that take them away from God. So, you know, if people want to call it celebrity and they want to say fanboys and fangirls and selfies and so on, I can't really lose much sleep over these things, you know. Um, at the end of the day, I appreciate the love of the people when they come and say thank you. Because if it wasn't for the listeners, I'm a nobody. It's the listeners that motivate you. It's the listeners and their thanks and gratitude. And even the Lord mentions, If you thank me, I'll give you more. And so in a way for us as humans, when people are grateful to us, it inspires us to come back with more. I'm sure with yourself, you've done a great program in Muharram. And when someone comes up to you and says, Mustafa, well done. Haraka's program in Muharram was innovative. It was nice. You're like, yeah, I needed that because maybe I didn't have a lot of people coming up to me and saying, well done. And that one person who did has now inspired me to, to maybe continue to do more. Yeah. So we can't lose much sleep on these things. Um, although you did raise the question, but we really can't lose much sleep on these things. You just got to get on with it. Life's short. Um, one day you're the talk of the town. Another day it'll be someone else, you know? Talking of, of the image of the scholar, I'm going to ask you a question. I hope oh, you can answer it. Go, you? <laughs> no, no, no. You know, so a lot of people speak about your tattoos, you know. So how can someone sitting on the mumbar have the tattoos, you know? Got, which tattoos? And I've got <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, which tattoos? I've got a friend of mine that said, you know, there's a Maulana apparently that calls you Alama Tattoo. Alama? Alama Tattoo. Well, so, I'm honored that he's called me Alama. <laughs> so I thought that was only reserved for the the greats like Taba Tabai and so on or Hilli. But uh, yeah. At the end of the day, you know, the tattoos, the last I checked is that the marja that I do the taqlid of Ayatollah Sistani um, has not said that it's prohibited. And um, my tattoos are actually a, a reflection of some of my favorite hadiths from the Ahlul Bayt. Alayhi Um yeah, I can show you, show the viewers uh, maybe a couple of them, but uh, I don't know how many of the viewers will remember, for example, uh, what sprinkles in you overflows in me. Imam Ali and Kumail. Imam Ali and Kumail in Hadith al-Haqiqah, for example. Mm. Or, for example, here's one. If this zip comes down, 
brothers, brothers and faith, faith equals in humanity. humanity. I, I make it a point that I'll never put God's name or the Prophet's name or the Ahlul Bayt's name on my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and rather, I just put the traditions. Um, and, and you're probably right. Listen, you can, <laughs> in the same way, we couldn't imagine that English lecturing was going to. Uh, was going to kick off as as it did never did you imagine that somebody um would have tattoos who'd be seen as uh, as the main lecturer and uh, and at the end they just because let's say my scholar allows it doesn't mean that it's obligatory i must make this clear to a lot of the youth out there mm. who think that because something's halal that means they have to do it not at all if your parents don't want you to do such a thing don't do it if your parents feel that such things are not the best images, don't do it. But uh, I think, you know, you said that someone called me Alama Tattoo. I think they should, you know, probably focus more on developing content regarding the Prophet and his family rather than discussing me, you know. Um, but I must thank them, you know, for calling me Alama. It's, it's really is a huge honor uh, to be known as Alama and may they continue to call me such wonderful honorific titles sorry i'm going to keep asking about the image have you have you ever considered wearing a imam a turban you know surely that's oh, for appropriate sure. for for a scholar yeah for sure i just felt that the youth wouldn't be able to chill with with me the way that youth feel they could relate to me now mm. there was a part of me that you know if you go to an interfaith event and you know, the rabbi is in full uniform and the priest is in full uniform and you're the only one who's in half uniform there always was a part of me where I was like, I should be in full uniform. Mm. But at the same time, why did I enter all of this? I didn't enter all of this three, four years ago. My first lecture was in the year 2000. And I wow. entered all of this to try and inspire others with what I felt I had been inspired outside the gates of Baqir. It wasn't so that people look at me and say, he looks religious, he looks holy. Those who want to wear, of course, this is something where one who has gained knowledge is able to represent the holy household. I have full respect for you know those who wear the garb. I remember one of my teachers, I asked him if he would put the turban on me and he was like, why? Hmm. I said, because I go to interfaith events and I want to look the part. The part. <laughs> You don't want to look like someone who's a bit holy. And um, I said, no, you don't need it. He said, there are others who could do those jobs. He said, for you, you aim higher. And that was interesting considering he wears one, considering he's a mujtahid, um, having studied under some of the greatest. And so we all have different roles. Um, but you can never say never. Mm. But I don't know how much it'll suit me. I think... Uh, I'd have to develop uh, maybe a, a beard that's let's a get bit the turban ready. Yeah, <laughs> maybe not now. Maybe not now. But maybe sometime in the future. Who knows? Whatever God destines. Going away from from the, the, this image now, and and you know, some people still say we want to invite Sayyid Ammar, we want to have Sayyid Ammar. But 
you know, Sayyid Ammar charges for his lectures and he charges quite a lot. Mm. Some people even say, you know, should should a should a speaker, a lecturer, a scholar, should he be charging for giving us the knowledge of the Ahlul Bayt, the knowledge of the Quran? Why is he even charging? Why should there should there be a fee for this lecture? I lectured at Harakah for eight years. You made a killing. <laughs> On Fridays and Tuesdays. Mm. How much was I? Uh, killing. How much? Tell me. Killing. Tell me how much. <laughs> Zero. Zero. <laughs> for the first eight years of my lecturing at um, at the Harakah on Friday nights for the community, uh, no one would even think of giving you a penny. I never, ever got paid. As never. cease afterwards. Yeah, Southern Fried Chicken <laughs> was about as much as I got, you know, two nasty <laughs> two <for> chicken two. <laughs> burgers. Toxic burgers. Um, that's as much as I got. I'd have to thank Dr. Liaka Delji who who spotted me early on like a scout spots a, a mm. football player and he and he signed me up for the Haider Islamic Center where I've been so fortunate to serve a wonderful community and um, and from there, I, I was receiving a, a wage as an employee, as the resident alim of the mosque. And I'd say that in the first few Muharrams, I would not stipulate um, a fee. Mm. And I completely understand those who will never stipulate a fee. Um, I only begun to discuss the fees for a lecture or for Majalis when i was uh, beginning my phd which was costing me a few thousand pounds a year and i felt that i needed to collect a certain amount to pay those fees i wasn't able to necessarily afford to pay like whatever twenty thousand pounds to finish a phd considering that you've now decided you're going to be someone serving in the english language and in those days you know it wasn't the most popular thing in the world it was slowly rising people were not used to giving and so i remember around 0506 i would be getting 50 pounds a night for a lecture without stipulating the first time i ever stipulated was i said if i can get 100 because that'll pay for my uh, tuition and my travel back and forth i was doing my phd at exeter university and it's at that moment that I realized that that professionalism was vital. Because sometimes what, what used to happen was that you'd have a person give you a certain amount. One of my close friends who's a, who's a renowned speaker, he said to me that, you know, they, they gave me an amount which was so little. And I was like, well, you don't necessarily stipulate. It's like, yeah, but I don't want to stipulate. I'm like, then you're going to have to accept anything because you're doing this for Imam al-Husayn So whatever they give you, he's like, yeah, but do you know how hard I've worked? I said, listen, there are those who don't want to stipulate, should not complain later on. And there are those who prefer that there isn't an argument or a, you know, um, a breakup of a relationship that occurs because I was expecting and you were expecting and mm -hmm. I thought it was this and you thought it was that. Listen, from the outset, let us agree. So that later on there isn't this confusion that occurs where there is a sour taste. There was a clip that was spread about me about 10 years ago that 
people were saying that I said that if you don't charge for a majlis, then you're a disease. And and that was taken completely out of context. But, you know, in some cases with our people, you'll hear three minutes, you won't hear 57. Mm. And you'll believe that part. And that was part of a discussion where a community had actually said to me that, look, we ask the speaker, just tell us what you're expecting. And the speaker says, no, 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 I'm doing this for Imam al-Hussein, alayhi salam. They're like, no, no, we know you're doing it for Mara. So we're not questioning your knee. Yeah? But just tell us what is the amount that you're expecting. And then the speaker would say, no, I'm not. You know, whatever you give me, I'll be happy. As soon as we give, gave him the envelope, he's like, what's this? Well, they're like, Maulana, you're the one who said to us that, uh, you know, it's my knee to serve Mara Hussein. He's like, yeah, serve Mara Hussein, but what's this you've given me? He wants Liya, not Niya. Liya, not Niya, exactly. And, and, and what happens is that they said to me, firstly, he had asked for a laptop already for his children. We've already given him that. So if you want to do the valuations. <laughs> Secondly, he had an orphanage in his country, if you can donate. Thirdly, he had a television channel that was just beginning. So if you can just donate as well to that. And also, the envelope you've given me is not what I was expecting. They're like, Molana, first, if you add up the laptops and the donations we've given your orphanage and everything, you went from, I'm only doing this for Imam al-Hussein, to actually I've got a school and an orphanage and a television channel and so on and so on and come to Pakistan and you'll see it and it's a lot. So they said, if you don't mind, address this issue that when we want to agree an amount, we have a couple of things to think about. Number one, we have the burden of taxes with the government. Things have to be registered, the payments we have to make. Um, and number two, we don't want someone leaving disappointed thinking that they did not honor me when we could have honored that amount had they just made it clear. So those who have this impression that I was insisting that you have to charge, I think many an Ahl al-Bayt society will vouch. In the UK, many... Uh, uh, a society of university students will vouch that I gave lectures without asking for anything in return. Many a house will vouch that I went to lecture in someone's house and did not ask for anything. Yes, people may come up to you later and say, please take this. But when it comes to certain areas, those areas may be because you want to pursue your studies, you want to develop, for example, a piece of literature, write a book and so on and so forth. And I think these are beneficial. At the end of the day, I'm fortunate God's given me the success that he gave me. There are others who may not be known as much, but they don't deserve to be treated in a way as if no acknowledgement is there whatsoever. You give them, they'll work harder, they'll buy more literature, they'll research more, they'll give back to the community more. Sayyid Ammar hasn't been short of attacks. You mentioned the, the clip about, you know, taken out of context, but there's, there's no clips made. There's a lot of, not a lot actually, there's yeah. a handful, but... They, you know, they they start getting sent around, and you'll see them attacking you. You know, some some saying, you know, Sayyid Ammar's friends with Tawhidi. They'll classify Sayyid Ammar is a, for example, Shirazi. Sayyid Ammar works for the CIA. <laughs> Sayyid Ammar is a government agent. Say, you know, Sayyid Ammar is a, all this stuff. You know, what do you say about those? You know, and those attacks in there. Firstly, if you're on the public spotlight, then you can't expect for everybody to love you. If Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib السلام, had haters, then who am I? Imam Ali السلام, never put a foot wrong. He had people insulting him, cursing him, saying he wasn't a Muslim, saying he didn't even pray. 
So who am I to expect a free ride? You've got to expect these things. There are certain positions that, or situations that may only happen with me, may not happen with others. Where there may be certain personalities who want to take a photo with me, they may not take a photo with others. So for example, Sheikh Tawhidi, when he asks to take a picture with you, I'm not going to turn around and say, no, I don't want to take a picture with you because, you know, me and you disagree on a lot of things. So I'm not going to take a picture with you. He wants to take a picture. I'll take a picture. Does that mean that me and Sheikh Tawhidi agree on everything? He himself will be the first to say that there are many areas that we differ. We differ maybe on areas of approach, opinion, styles. But just because people have seen a picture of me with somebody, or maybe the other way around, somebody with me, does not mean that we completely agree with each other's opinions or that we accept every statement that has come out of our mouths. You mentioned a couple of other areas apart from... CIA, government oh, agent. <laughs> That's unbelievable. You know, you've yeah. seen. I'm sure you've seen one or two clips. Yeah, well, you know, I think I think that's pretty unbelievable. In all honesty, I can't even get into America. So, you know, that it's sad, um, but that slander always exists. Look, for for goodness' sake, said Kamal Haidari right now, there are people calling him kafir, marja, mm. scholar in his own right. You may differ with said Kamal on certain areas. You cannot deny that the man is a scholar. He's now being called a kafir. How many others can you name me who were also called kuffar? Quite a few. Who am I then? So if a person is going to come and say that CIA and Shirazi, I, I do the taqlid of Ayatollah Sistani, just because I have a show or lectures on a channel which may be sponsored by who? By the Shirazi family. I ask people a question. What do you know about the background of the Shirazi family? It's mm. a, I come from a background where my grandfather mm. was in charge of Ayatollah al-Khoi's office in Najaf for 20 years of his life. Mm. So you could say that my background is within the Marja'iyya. Ayatollah al-Sistani close with my grandfather. Ayatollah al-Khoi close with my grandfather. Ayatollah Khomeini close with my grandfather. But okay, we now come to pastors new we come to the uk and when we come to the uk we have pockets of people who come from different Background. backgrounds but we're all trying to work together when i come on imam hussein tv i don't come on saying that i'm coming on the shirazi channel i have my differences clearly on some scholars that are not revered by the shirazi family who i revere I revere Ayatollah Khomeini. I revere Allama Tabatabai. I come on a channel that may not necessarily revere them. If that channel was outright in, for example, saying that only a certain type of person can come on the channel, You'd be not then I wouldn't be on that channel because they know that I revere certain people they don't revere. If now, Ayatollah Khamenei, says that you cannot, for example, curse 
the wives of the Prophet or curse the companions of the Prophet. Is he saying that that's not in Shia literature? Or is he saying that such acts are not beneficial for the future of the unity of the Muslims in the world today? Do we find cursing in Shia literature? Because you can't hide these books anymore. They're all available on the internet. You want to try and tell people that we Shia don't, we, it's all available on, online. A person can go and PDF the Bihar or the Wasail or Al-Kafi or the works of, for example, Ibn Tawus or the works of, for example, others such as Safar or Barqi and so on. You can find this in there. So don't look at those who bring out things from Shi'i literature and straight away say, because you've brought out something controversial, that means you must be an agent. No. That's in our books. You may have your political worldview, which says that, I remember, for example, 2011. Mm. I made a statement that you sitting at home and slandering the companions which are revered by other schools of Islam is something that is causing the deaths of other Shia. Mm. A few years later, when ISIS was massacring the Shia and there were non-Shia who weren't batting an eyelid silent in their condemnation, mm. I came out clearly and highlighted where I believed was the root of this terrorism that exists. People said, Amman al-Shawhan has changed. Before, he would never. It's not about change. There's a time Imam Ali salam believes silence is best. There's a time he's like, bring it on a Jamal and Safin. What are you waiting for? There's a time Imam al-Sadiq speaks rational. There's a time he moves to a mystical type of Shiism. There is an understanding that there are different epochs. You look at the world and you look at the context around you. What's sad for me is that those who make such clips, why don't you approach me and ask me, talk to me. If you're going to accuse me of being Shirazi and I'm doing taqlid of Ayatollah Sistani. If you're going to accuse me of this or that, know the context, the background. Ya Oh, you who believe avoid suspicion for suspicion in some cases can be a sin. That's all I wish. Otherwise, can you stop people from having issues with you? Believe you me, there are people who may sometimes have issues with you, not because they feel you're a bad person, but because of a petty thing that's occurred and they take out the whole thing on you completely. And we don't need to delve into that any further, I don't think. What if, sorry, I'm, I'm, I am going to delve You know, those that are listening that have made these clips or that have attacked you, or they have said things about you. You know, does it get to you? Does it upset? What would you say to them if they're listening right now? They've made no. I just say to them that listen. I I'd hope that the base of what we're trying to walk to work towards is to serve the Imam of our time. We may differ in the way Zorara differed with Mu'min al-Taq. Mm. Maybe Hisham ibn al-Hakam and Muhammad bin Muslim. Maybe Jabir bin Yazid al-Ju'fi and Abu Basir. There are companions of our imams who love to serve the imam 
as in the majority of the names I just mentioned. Mm. They love to serve the imam of their time, but one had an approach that was maybe a bit more direct than the other, a bit more forthright than the other, a bit more, a bit less diplomatic than the other. But some were known later on as Ashab al-Ijma'ah, the ones who when you see their names in the chains of narrations, you automatically would see some sort of authenticity there. If therefore we can find that in the companions of the imams, they had the same love for the imam, but their worldview may have differed, we have to consider this. We have to consider that we may have different worldviews, but we're all, inshallah, having the same aim. And inshallah, we sit together one day and have a dinner together, even with the detractor. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes people may have an image because they haven't met you. They have an image about you. And I can't help that, that you reach a position in your career where it's very difficult to meet everybody who knows you or has heard of you. But inshallah, we come together one day. And if we don't come together, we think of making 70 excuses for one another. You know, talking talking about approach, you mentioned, you know, the approach of different companions that you mentioned of the imams. Some, you know, and you, and you brought this up in the, the previous question when you said, you know, you approached in, in 2014 when you, I think, 14 or 15, if I'm not mistaken, you know, the ISIS lecture and the root of terrorism. You know, some people say, you know, say that Ammar's approach is now very sectarian. He's become a sectarian speaker. You know, what, what happened to Shia Sunni unity? What, what, what do you say to that? Female genital mutilation is sectarian. Muslim and gay is sectarian. Woman's rights in Islam is sectarian. Abortion in Islam is sectarian. Adoption in Islam is sectarian. 98% of the majalis that I've given have never been anywhere near what was maybe seen in the lecture about ISIS or the lecture which later came about the roots of terrorism. But there are two issues to bring forth. The first issue is those who set the parameter of what's sectarian bully us straight away. And we become so apologetic. What do I mean? They'll set the parameters that as long as you mention the following names, you're a sectarian speaker. And then they'll spread it within your own community. Don't let such speakers speak mm. because they are affecting Shia Sunni unity. unity. When their speakers have a lecture that's blatantly calling Abu Talib Kafir mm. or a lecture that has praise for Muawiyah, that's not sectarian, that's fine. That's his narrative. That's his narrative. Mm. So I'll have my narrative as well. But to say that there's been a change, not at all. All it is is contextual. There was a period, ISIS was there. There was massacre of Spiker. Somebody had to say something. There were non-Shia who were blaming it on foreign policy Mm. or were beating around the bush. Same burnings ISIS did we can see in Islamic history. And the same oppression to children we can see in early Islamic history. And just because someone points it out, then automatically you're called sectarian. And the second problem we have is that our own community, because of how apologetic they are, 
they start then labeling you. Sectarian forgetting the thousands of majalis that had nothing to do with early Islamic history. And even the early Islamic history, you mentioned something very important there, which is our narrative. It's yes. in our books. Why is it now become a problem presenting your narrative, whereas others can present their narratives? It it's always hear people saying things like, you know, this is in Bukhari and this is in Muslim. Who cares? Who cares? Okay, I and others may mention it from other sources of literature, but I don't really care if it's in Bukhari is not a hujja for me. Muslim is not a hujja for me. It's like when a person says to you, prove to me imama from the Quran. Mm. Uh, whose tafsir are we going to use of the verses? Tafsir written by those who praise those who fought Imam Ali alayhi salam at Jamal al-Safin? Nah, no chance. They're not going to find a verse for Ali ibn Talib there. So there's no need to be so apologetic. Find me, where is it in, 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 in non-Shi'i literature that I can show them? No, I've got my literature. That's enough for me. Do you look at certain lectures and say, maybe I shouldn't have said that or, or I should have said this point differently? Of course you do. Of course you do. Um, so we're not infallibles. We've all made mistakes. A football player will look back at certain matches mm. and wish that they didn't slip. Allah, Gerard. They'll look back at certain matches. They wish they didn't score own goals. When they'll look back. They should have played that pass instead of that pass. And naturally, I do look back at a couple of lectures. I wish I had said that line differently. Or the words I used, I wish that I could go back in time and change them. People's but one thing I do know is that all of it was said with a sincere intention. But yeah, we're all human and we've made mistakes. You know, people say you make your points very well in your lecture. But why don't you go out and debate those that disagree with you? Why isn't there more debates taking place? I think there's a healthy discourse on uh, on YouTube where there's many viewpoints which are positive. People will call me out to debate me for years um, and will continue to do so until the day I die. People will call out the top in any sport because they want some way in which either they'll get publicity, they'll get people who'll want to view what they've done, there'll be a lot more fanfare for them by using your name. But I say let the competitors compete. You know, I've got my lectures online. And if others have their material online, then let the people choose. You know, it's a free world and people are able to listen to both. And let them make their decision um, which path they want to choose. I remember someone messaged me a few years ago and they said to me that you challenged anyone for a debate. And here's the clip from your lecture, which was the lecture on the roots of terrorism mm. and radicalism. And... I was certain that in that lecture, I never ever challenged anyone to a debate. They said, no, no, here, here, here's the clip. There's nothing in the lecture on, you know, on radicalism. 
on radical Islam which says that there was a part of a lecture mm. on Shia Sunni marriages. And in there, I was discussing how you don't need to be apologetic with the future spouse. Be ready and say, listen, you want to debate? I'm ready to debate. Because this is marriage. This is a decision you're going to make for life. Mm. They took that part out. <laughs> and they said, hey, look, you said I challenge anyone for a debate. Let's not waste our time on these issues. You know, uh, there's a lot more productive work to be done. Um, and I think we need more healthy discourse rather than debate where you antagonize others or you arrogantly put down others. Let's have healthy discourse. Um, maybe looking at bringing different schools of Islam together to discuss, you know, contemporary issues. What plans do you have for upcoming lectures? Any clues, you know, you can give us on, on titles? Well, you know, I've never, ever, ever, ever revealed my topic to, um, or my topics to anyone before I lecture in Muharram and Shahar Ramadan, for example. I keep everyone in suspense, and that does uh, frustrate some of the team behind the scenes who are thinking, what's the topic, what's the topic? Um, but uh, more suspense to come. Just pray that we get to Shahar Ramadan and Muharram healthy. You put the whole team in suspense because we, we've done work with you. And sometimes yeah. we're like, give us the title for the lecture. And you're yeah. like, yeah, okay, I will do. And then we're messaging you, give us the, you do it always last minute. Yeah, so even the back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I just don't want anyone to know, you know, what I'm about to discuss until those last few minutes. Um, I think sometimes, you know, there are some speakers who'll say, here's my 10 lectures for the holy month of Muharram. And then people will be like, well, I want number one. I'm not sure about number four. I'm never going to listen to number seven. Whereas with myself, I'll be like, just wait, sit back. All this is stressful, you know. Alhamdulillah, I've been blessed that we've been together doing the majalis from the shahadat of Imam al-Sadiq, and then we've done a few other shahadats in different mosques, different centers um, in London, all, all online, alhamdulillah, and I was blessed to be part of that. But how does Sayyid Ammar unwind other than preparing for your lectures? Because alhamdulillah, we've sat down and I've seen the preparation. It takes months. Well, we can't reveal every single way in which we yeah. unwind. Now get us in a lot of trouble. <laughs> Definitely. Who does Sayyid Ammar keep close? Well, I think fir firstly, we have to make clear that my problems or my stress is so first world. Real problems and stress are those children have to walk miles to go and get water. Or the, where places where there's no sanitization, there's malnutrition, malaria killing people every day. That's real stress. People who walk in the street and wonder about the next bomb blast. That's real stress. Mm. What's my stress? That someone said that I'm a so-and-so or that someone differed with me on a lecture? That's not stress. Yes, if it's slanderous, then I think slander is not something which is to be taken lightly. But uh, you unwind, you know, you've got great family, you've got great friends. Um, and we unwind, we chill, uh, you know, and uh, without their support, I'm nothing. So what do I do to unwind? And there's a number of things which I can't reveal, otherwise there's going to be too many more clips. On behalf of, obviously, Progeny Podcast, we'd like to thank you, Sayyid, uh, for making time. I'd just like to also let the listeners know that, inshallah, there'd be more parts coming up um i was gonna do i have so much other questions but i thought maybe try and do a podcast with you every now and then get you back in so inshallah we'll we'll have a series there's a lot more about you know 
one very important question that I had, but we didn't have time, was you know your work around the universities and bringing the name of the Ahlul Bayt. You know that 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 for me, I think, was something amazing. That having the name, for example, of Imam Ali alayhi salam, different universities and the Lady Khadija's name in Cambridge. So inshallah, there'll be more upcoming podcasts inshallah with yourself. But before we let you go, I've got the quick fire round, sure. and I've got some questions. Just uh, some some oh light banter. So. Oh God! Um, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll do them in like sixty seconds. That's why this prop is here. Bring the car. You ready? Yes. Iraqi or Pakistani food? Pakistani. Ronaldo or Messi? Ronaldo. Mm. Premier League or Champions League? Premier League. Barcelona or Real? Neither. Oh. Rolex or AP? AP. Best ever Liverpool player. Stevie G. And he slipped. iPhone or Samsung? iPhone. Skydiving or scuba diving? Neither. Najaf or Karbala? Najaf. Texting or talking? Texting or Texting. Okay. New York or London? London. Iraqi Latum or Urdu Latum? Urdu as in Pakistani. Yeah, I don't think anyone can beat them when it comes to the Martin. Yeah. Different league. Do you think so? Different league. Okay. If there was a movie made about yourself, what genre would it be? Drama. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a morning or a night person? Night. Your favorite hobby? Well, everything surrounding football. Say that more, even though we've got, mashallah, you, you managed to finish it before the. We loved having you here. Happy with and, uh, Look forward to the forthcoming ones. Should be some interesting discussions. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you to all the viewers as well and listeners.